This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzer with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 22nd. Today, what colder weather means for COVID, how an embattled court could play an outsized role in the election, and the sound of coronavirus. This week, we hit 200,000 deaths in the United States from the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Lenny Bernstein, and I cover health and medicine for The Washington Post. We are into the high six millions in terms of the number of infections, a very major milestone and a terrible reminder of what this has done to our country. And as we're facing this milestone in deaths, what are we seeing in terms of the infection rate and how things are actually going here in the U.S. and trying to get things under control? So we had a small lull over the last um, month or two. It's nothing like what we needed. The number of infections came down into the 30 and 40,000s which is way too high a baseline to be heading into the winter. The virus does better in the cold. It's just what viruses do. And we are going to be going indoors more, which means the possibility for infecting each other, for spread of the virus is going to increase. So we are between two parts of this pandemic coming out of a small lull that really can't be described as controlling the virus and moving into a period of the year that is fraught with very grim possibilities. Hmm. And in terms of what we're seeing more recently as we get into this trickier part of the year, which groups are we seeing experiencing a rise in COVID cases and where are we seeing this rise start to begin? So something like 30 states have had a rise in their caseload over the past seven days. It's in the Midwest. It's in the Dakotas, Oklahoma, I believe Missouri, lots of states in the middle part of the country. It is in a lot of college towns. University students have gone back to school and not all of them are following the rules about masking and about maintaining distance and washing hands. And so we are seeing outbreaks at colleges and universities across the country. As we speak, the entire student population of the University of Colorado in Boulder is on quarantine. And as you probably could guess, when large numbers of students in college and university towns become infected, they tend to spread it around those towns as well. So they're taking the bulk of the blame right now. Because our testing system is so screwed up, you can never be 100% sure that when you're seeing a rise, 
It just doesn't mean that we're actually doing more testing in that area. And that feels so pressing right now because, of course, we're continuing to have these conversations about whether it's safe for kids to go back to school. We have teenagers and young adults who, in some cases, are are trying to be on college campuses right now. But also, we're learning more about how the virus affects young people. President Trump had said some things that are not true, that young people don't have long-term health implications from getting infected. It affects elderly people, elderly people with heart problems and other problems. If they have other problems, that's what it really affects. That's it. You know, in some states, thousands of people, nobody young, below the age of 18, like nobody. They have a strong immune system. Who knows? You look at you. Take your hat off to the young because they have a hell of an immune system. But it affects Virtually nobody. It's a it's an amazing thing. By the way, open your schools, everybody. But it seems like the science is saying that there are long term effects and that we're getting a better sense of what those could be. Hospitalization rates for younger people are going up. Infection rates for younger people are going up. It is true that younger people do not tend to die from this disease. There are all kinds of theories about why that may be, but people under 21 and in particular people under 10 do not die from this disease in anywhere near the numbers that older people or middle-aged people die. But it is not a benign disease. People under 21 and people, you know, in their 20s can get very, very sick from COVID-19. And while the research is not conclusive yet, We would expect that some of them will have lasting difficulties in the same way that their elders are having lasting difficulties. And by that, I mean respiratory issues, heart issues, maybe even some neurocognitive issues. So any young person who thinks, oh, I'll get this, I'll have a cold, maybe some aches and pains, and then I'll skate out the other side, it is not a guarantee. So when it comes to this question of whether the virus can be transmitted just through the air floating around, what was the CDC saying before and what are they saying now? The CDC's guidance has been to stay six feet away from each other because the virus is emitted in droplets from people's noses and mouths when they sing, when they talk, when they breathe, when they shout. And those droplets are heavy and they drop to the floor. Then on Friday, they said, well, it may actually be true that these droplets are light enough to travel through the air to waft distances and that you might need to worry about being even further than six feet away because they can travel on air currents, they can travel on air conditioning, they can travel on heating. Then they dropped that guidance yesterday and they said that they had put it up by mistake. They were not ready to conclude that you had to worry about that. But many other people already have concluded that. Hundreds of engineers who study this process have told the CDC Yes, it travels on the air. It's an aerosol. And the WHO has sort of acknowledged it as well. So where does that leave us? What are we supposed to believe? Maybe aerosols are scientifically a big issue. Maybe aerosols aren't. I am going to protect myself from them. From the beginning of this pandemic, anyone who was accepting the guidance on droplets or aerosols should have been wearing a mask. So we're all wearing masks. We all should be washing our hands. We all should be wiping down surfaces. But if you want to be extra cautious, then take the six-foot limit that they tell you to observe and make it 10. Double it. Stay away from people. Stay away from indoor places. 
don't go and sit in a movie theater for two hours because if aerosols are a problem, as many people believe, and there's an infected person not wearing a mask in that movie theater, it could very well reach you. And it seems like this is a critical question to be asking, considering the fact that it is getting cooler. The chances of being able to spend a lot of time outside for most of the country is going to be less likely and that you have a lot of decisions that are being made about, OK, is it safe to reopen indoor restaurants if the tables are far away from each other? Is it OK to be inside with other people if folks are wearing masks? And it feels like this science about how the virus can travel in the air indoors is still being ironed out, at least in terms of what we're hearing from the government. That's correct. Everything you said is correct. And and not just restaurants and movie theaters, but in our own homes. We have heating that's going to begin blowing things around our own homes. And if there's an infected person there and they are emitting virus into the air, it may very well get moved around your own home. Now, yeah, We're going to be indoors, and if aerosols are a problem, they are a bigger problem than when we are spending more of our time outdoors. So all of this sounds really bad, and it seems like as much as the last six months have been really bad, that things could get worse. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel here? So we're moving closer and closer to the deployment of a vaccine. There are many steps before we get there. Companies that are making them, and there are three at the head of the pack, first need to conclude that they are safe and effective. That's the testing process that's going on right now. Then it has to be approved by the FDA, and the FDA will do that as quickly as possible. Then comes distribution, and that is going to be a massive undertaking. The two at the head of the line require two shots, one 21 days apart and one 28 days apart. So... You're going to have to distribute all of that. The vaccine needs to be kept extremely cold. In one case, I believe it's 70 degrees Celsius below zero. In the other case, it's 20 degrees Celsius below zero. That's really cold. I can imagine that that would present significant challenges to trying to ship these vaccines. Yeah, we should we should all buy stock in dry ice companies because that's that's <laughs> going to be necessary to get this done. Then we will be ramping up the distribution process. And the first people who are going to get it, logically, are healthcare workers so that they can take care of the sick. Other kinds of essential workers, people at risk of severe disease. So you're talking about folks in nursing homes and, and other older people and people who have underlying conditions such as diabetes and heart disease that make them susceptible to severe disease. So if you want to... Consider that a light at the end of the tunnel. It may be fairly distant, but by the end of the year, we might actually see some few doses being rolled out. And then if everything works, they start cranking up the number they produce and the rollout gets bigger and bigger as we head into the first six months of 2021. Many people do not have confidence in anything we're trying to do right now. But let's say for the sake of argument that our distribution plan works, Some people will be getting the vaccine uh, by December 31st, but I don't think it will be a lot of people. Lenny Bernstein is a health and medicine reporter for The Post.
Ginsburg's death leaves the court with just eight justices going into election day. Five nominated by Republicans and three nominated by Democrats. There has been so much conversation about the implications of this vacancy, how it will affect voters, how it will affect Senate races. But the Supreme Court could also play a major role in the election itself. We're in very unusual times. More Americans are going to be voting by mail uh, than ever before and for the first time and possibly making mistakes filling out those ballots, which will open the door to just much more litigation and a possible role for the Supreme Court. I'm Anne Marimo, a reporter at The Post, where I cover legal affairs at the federal courts. Even before her death, uh, we saw several lawsuits from the various states ending up at the Supreme Court over how voters are going to cast their ballots in the pandemic. So the question is, what happens as more of those possibly reach the high court either before the election or even after the election? And what are some of the issues that we're seeing come up in the cases that are being brought to the Supreme Court? Like, what what are the issues related to voting that are being hashed out? Right. So because we're in the middle of a pandemic, you're seeing some states trying to make it easier for people to cast ballots by mail and not have to go in person and risk exposure to coronavirus So we see in some states, Democrats um, trying to lower barriers to voting um, when it comes to requirements for absentee ballots, like uh, witness signatures and also postmarks. There's questions about what happens when someone uh, sends their ballot in, you know, by election day, but it arrives afterwards. And then we're seeing, in some cases, Republicans going to court to try to keep in place uh, the current voting rules. And how have we seen the court ruling so far on those kinds of questions? Yeah, so far, the Supreme Court has, it seems, tried to sidestep controversy and really defer to what the local officials are doing. So we've seen a a couple cases, one out of Alabama, where they split five to four uh, not to lift some of the strict rules in place, for instance, requiring a photocopy of your identification with your mail-in ballot. But on the other hand, in Rhode Island, we saw the court reject an effort by Republicans to keep in place strict witness requirements. So it seems like they've deferred to local and state officials as much as possible in those cases so far. So then... What could potentially happen now or what are the scenarios with how the the court could rule going forward, both with the possibility that this will be an eight person court on Election Day or that it could be a nine person court with a new justice uh, appointed by President Trump? One of the things I'm most interested in is because of the pandemic Election law experts say we're going to see a massive increase in the number of Americans voting by mail for the first time. And with that, they expect there will be more mistakes and people having problems filling out their ballots correctly. And that opens the door to the possibility of just much more uh, litigation in the courts after the election, with courts trying to figure out you know, how whether they should count ballots that are not filled out 
correctly or maybe arrive after election day. Um, usually there, there are often these types of disputes, but they get hashed out at local canvassing boards and in state courts. So the question is, do any of these rise to the level of the high court? And looming all of the over all of this, of course, is Bush v. Gore, um, the famous Florida meltdown uh, in the 2000 presidential race between George Bush and then Vice President Al Gore, with uh, the Supreme Court essentially deciding the outcome of that race. And that's very much on the minds of the justices who want to uphold the integrity and sort of independence of the Supreme Court. And I think don't want to be um, damaged by a public perception that they're involved in, in partisan politics. And this is just a question of logistics. But if there is not a new justice confirmed to the court by the beginning of November and it's an eight person court, if they split four four, what happens to those decisions? Who decides? In the case of a tie, a four to four tie, that means that the court would be upholding whatever the lower court decided. So then nothing changes. It's just the decision goes back to what was previously done by a lower court. That's right. But the the various court watchers and experts we talk to think that particularly Chief Justice John Roberts, who's emerged really as a moderating central force on the court, will not want to be seen as taking a, a partisan role in choosing the president. So I think that they would work very hard not to have a four to four split on something so critical to our democracy. And if there is a new justice by then, a justice who obviously will be nominated by President Trump, and it ends up being something like a 5-4 decision where that justice becomes critically important in changing the game for the election, I, I think that the political appearances of that could be even more grave and could have a really lasting impact. If you have a president who chooses a justice in the days before the election, and then that justice is a critical part of why that president is reelected. Absolutely. So I think the uh, judicial ethics rules mean that that justice would not necessarily have to recuse from such a decision. But I could see a situation where senators uh, questioning the nominee during the confirmation process perhaps ask that very question, you know, would you, Trump nominee, agree uh, not to be involved in such a decision when your nomination you know, depended on, on President Trump? And how do you think this situation, both in terms of the legal precariousness of this election, but also the fact that this seat is opening up at such a critical moment, how do you think that might affect the future of the Supreme Court and how we view the Supreme Court? On the Supreme Court right now, there are only two justices who were also involved in the 2000 Bush v. Gore decision, and that's Clarence Thomas, who was in the majority, and Stephen Breyer, who dissented and believed that the recount could have kept going. So even though only two remain on the court from the 2000 decision, every single one of those justices is aware of how the court is viewed and its reputation. And again, particularly Chief Justice Roberts is interested in maintaining the reputation of the court. So that will be very much on their minds um, as they decide you know, whether to get involved. The question of whether one of these cases ends up at the Supreme Court also really depends on just how close the race is itself. I think if 
it's not close, um, then we won't see as many of these challenges. But if there are a large number of problematic absentee ballots, if the margin is tight in a small number of states, that could really open up to aggressive litigation that could keep going you know, right up until the Electoral College and possibly beyond. Anne Marimo covers legal affairs for The Post. President Trump is moving rapidly in the process of nominating a new justice for the Supreme Court. He said Tuesday he will announce his choice on Saturday. And it appears that... I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Republicans have the votes they need to go ahead with confirmation. Senator Mitt Romney, who had been considered one of the few possible defectors, announced Tuesday that he believes President Trump should get to choose a replacement. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. And now, one more thing from Nairobi Bureau Chief Max Barak. One of the things I love most about Kenya is its country music. A lot of Kenyans would laugh at me for that. It's not really seen as cool, at least by urbanites. But I love it. It's relentlessly upbeat. And to me, it's the ultimate driving music. But I did notice the unmistakable presence of Corona in many of the song's lyrics. And pretty much just on that inkling, I went down to a town called Machakos, about an hour out of Nairobi, to a small recording studio where the owner said that he'd recorded over 50 artists singing about coronavirus. Tell me your, your name mm. and the name of your song. Yeah, okay. My name is Alamalak Kamande. My song called Corona Filas. Is, a, is a one of the songs encouraging people in YouTube, even in my local community, already I've, I've done with this one. So I think this song is good for everyone. When we got there, we were lucky to meet two artists who were recording or re-recording coronavirus singles that day. These two people were actually quite emblematic of how the pandemic has affected Kenya. Both had lost jobs due to the pandemic-induced economic downturn. And one had even lost her aunt, the woman who'd raised her, someone who was really special to her. Her song's main chorus goes, One meter away, One meter away, quarantine for how much longer? 
They were using their music to educate people about the virus's dangers. But at the end of the day, singing was also a way for them to get some joy into their lives and maybe some money in their pockets if their songs were good enough. Introduce us to yourself. What's your name? What's the name of the studio? How did you get into this business? My official name is John Basil Siali, and the name of my company is Jawabu Studios. We really try working and day and night to produce something quality and something good. For things to go viral, not just the virus, <laughs> but also music. Yeah, actually, since the pandemic of this corona, I've been busy. They've been producing corona songs. Others have been doing songs for, more, for inspiration, songs to pray to God to heal our countries. We really love our music to reach people wherever they are so that they can get our messages quickly. These songs, I can't stress this enough, are pretty upbeat. I mean, we're talking about songs about coronavirus that you can dance to. And that's, that's not even it. We're talking about songs about coronavirus that you can't even help dancing to. Max Barak is the Nairobi bureau chief for The Post. Good. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the listeners who have taken the time to rate and review our show on their podcast app. Reviews are an important thing that lets other people discover our show. And we read them, even the mean ones. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.